Amen. Thank you again, worship team. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. You can find that in your New Testament, Acts chapter 5. And as you turn there, just share a quick story to get us into the text today. I suspect I might be the, uh, is it the youngest one left, the last generation uh, to remember what it was like to sit down as a family and to watch the family videos. Um, now, family videos still exist today, of course. The problem is today there are too many family videos because you got the camera and the phone. So we record everything, like little Tommy found a nickel, and, we, and you're never going to watch that video, and it, it buries it. But back in the day, little guys, there was the big thing, and you had the cassette, and you could record like 30 minutes, which means that Tommy's nickel, this isn't going to make the cut, right? You've got to be selective. And so when you get together as brothers and cousins, it was always exciting to to watch the family videos, you know, Christmas of 95, the glory days, or the, or the uh, church musical of 96, which, which Miss Amanda was in. And uh, she didn't know she was going to marry me at that point. I knew. Uh, she didn't yet know. But those were the days, right? And that might not be the best analogy, but it's not the worst analogy for what we find in the book of Acts. Because Luke here is recording these stories from the early days in the church. He can't record everything. Right? So he's got to be selective. These are the moments that matter. And so as we look to the text today, he is recording once again another moment that matters. And so we're going to ask questions like, why is it that he's recorded this particular moment? What are we meant to learn from this? But this is the kind of story that, you know, for me and my cousins, this is the kind of video that you plop down and you watch with great excitement because this text is amazing. Amazing things happen here. And some things that prompt questions happen here. And we're going to deal with those as well. But the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. And we're going to read from Acts chapter 5, verse 12 to 16. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said, this story is amazing. It's amazing. And this story is probably prompting some questions in your mind right now. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get to some of those questions that naturally arise from a passage like this. But before we go there, I want to make sure that we don't skip the most important question, which is, what are we supposed to see in this story? What, what are we, Luke recorded this for a reason. So what is it that we're meant to see in this story? So if in your brain, your, your mind is already saying, well, do, do things like that happen today? And why aren't they happening today? And should we see more? I, I want to just plead with you to press pause on those questions. We will get there. Pause. Let's make sure that we're seeing what we're meant to see in this story first. What do we see? I want to pull out three things that we see. First, we see an answered prayer. And oh, we need to see this. I guarantee you, Luke... Luke is written in such a way because he means for us to see this. So if you remember, what happened when Peter and John were 
taken, they spent that night in prison and then they came before the Sanhedrin and they were released and they, they were told, if you keep talking about Jesus, then you're going to be back in prison or worse. Do you remember what they did? They went back, they found their fellow believers and they prayed. They prayed. And we can find that prayer if you just flip back one page in your Bible in chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 29 to 30. See this with me. What were they praying for? And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants, what? To continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So that's the request. They're saying, God, help us not to stop. We've been warned to stop. And in our flesh, it'd be easy to stop because there's going to be consequences. Help us, though, to continue to speak your word with boldness. Well, where do we find them? In chapter 5, they're at Solomon's portico teaching. Where were they arrested in chapter 4? Solomon's portico. So the first part of their request is answered. God has given them the courage, the boldness to continue to speak, in fact, right in the same place where they were arrested just a short while ago. And the second part, they say, and God, would you do signs and wonders in our midst to help break up this hard ground around us? Lord, we want people to listen. So would you verify this message that we're proclaiming with many signs and wonders? And he answers that request in spades. That's what we see in this text. We see an answer to prayer. And I would argue, if if you see nothing else, Luke intends for us to see this. Once again, he's reminding us that the powerful church is the prayerful church. And I I know that I keep beating this drum. Again and again, I've been beating this drum in this series. But is it fair to say that Luke is the one who continues to beat this drum again and again in the series? He keeps bringing us back to these prayer meetings. He keeps bringing us to these answered prayers because Luke intends for us to see that it is as the church prays that God is moving in the world, and particularly here in Jerusalem. Every time we see them, when they, have to, uh, when they don't know what to do because Jesus has ascended to heaven, they wait and they pray together. And when they need a new apostle, they gather together and they pray. And when they're sending missionaries, they gather and they pray. And when they come out of prison, they gather and they pray. And again and again and again, this church demonstrates for us that their power is in prayer. They demonstrate that that's what, that's what it looks like to be a people who are used by God. That before all of your plotting and your planning is praying, is seeking the Lord. And Luke's repeating this again and again because he seems to understand that people like me, perhaps people like you, are terribly slow learners. He's reminding us that, you know, you're always so excited about all of this stuff over here. But, but remember, you can't have this without that. And he keeps drawing these lines back. This whole exciting move of the Spirit here was an answer to this specific request. Remember, I recorded that request for you? And remember, oh, you see how the gospel's breaking out in the city right here and thousands upon thousands are getting saved? Remember that prayer meeting right here where they asked specifically for this? Luke's recording that because he knows that we're going to lose this connection and we're going to want the ends without the means. We can't be those people. We must be a people of prayer. So I'll ask you, do you remember what our theme verse is for this year? It's in Luke 11.1. 1. Lord, anybody remember? Teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. When we started this ministry year, we had two prayer groups that were meeting regularly. As of today, we have five prayer groups that are meeting regularly. Praise God. That's a good start. 
dare I say, more. Oh, that God would just continue to grow us as a people of prayer, that we would be desperately seeking Him because we can't have this without that. So, that's the first thing we see. It's an answered prayer. Second, in this story, we see a powerful reputation. And I want to just give a, a word of commendation to Marianne, who always prepares the slides week after week, which you're not even appreciating. She's still running them for the p- 10 people at home who are watching this, which is so commendable. But not only does she prepare the slides, she also helps me when I can't find quotes. And I knew I had heard a story somewhere, and I, I included it in the manuscript, but I couldn't find the quote. Well, Marianne tracked it down. It's from an actor named W.C. Fields. And the quote is, never work with animals or children. Here's the context. He's an actor. And he's, he said, he's talking to other actors and he says, listen, don't work with animals or children. Because here's the thing. Worst case scenario or normal reality, they're spilling things on you. They're, it's, they're making a mess. You're doing 101 takes. But, it, but then best case scenario, even when you get the perfect take and everybody watches it, nobody is watching you. Everybody's watching the cute little animal or the cute child. Never work with animals or children. They've, they've just got a gravitational pull for people's attention. Well, similarly, there are some doctrines that just have a gravitational pull for us that, that's perhaps stronger than others. They grab our attention, some details and some stories. For example, when we read this passage, how many of us in this room immediately our minds go to the fact that Peter's shadow is healing people? Right? And what, I, I read the text and I close the text and you are thinking, wow, that's what is going on here. People are getting healed and his shadow and... I get it. All of our minds are racing there. But here's the thing. We raced right past verse 13. And there's something that we need to see in verse 13. Don't miss it. I'm going to read it again. Talking about the people in Jerusalem. It says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So Luke records this significant detail. That here in Jerusalem... The church has established a reputation. And and the city is holding them in high esteem, right? People are getting healed. This is amazing. People are being transformed. Integrity, character. People are changing in this church. And and they're holding them in high esteem. That's really, they, they really appreciate that. Nevertheless, none of the rest dared to join them. Because this is the place where Ananias and Sapphira were struck down. This people is the place where the consuming fire lives. The holy God is in their midst. That's the reputation they've got in the city of Jerusalem. It's fascinating. My, um, so my wife, and she doesn't know I'm going to say this, and she wouldn't let me if she did, but she's a gifted evangelist. She's really courageous. She's bold. She'll talk to anybody, anytime. And she, she talks to people at our gym all the time, and she goes in before me, and I go in after. So it's interesting that I get the follow-up talks. And... Uh, and so there was, there's one guy in particular, a really strong guy, um, who teases me sometimes. But he comes to me, and he says, man, your wife asked me again if I'd come to church. And I'm telling you, man, I can't, I don't know what his accent is, so I won't try. But I'm telling you, man, it, the day that I come in those doors, fire's going to fall from heaven and consume me. You know, and he laughs, and, we, and everybody laughs. Because I've heard that joke a hundred times. You've heard that joke. People make that joke with you all the time. It's a joke. He doesn't mean it. He doesn't, he doesn't actually expect that he's going to encounter the holy God when he comes to worship with us. It's just a joke. It wasn't a joke in Jerusalem. I want you to see that. 
The community in Jerusalem looked at the church and they said, God is in their midst. And they trembled. And as I read that and reflected on that this week, I'll tell you, doesn't it feel like we have it exactly backwards in our culture? We try to lure in the neighbors with gimmicks and tricks. Oh, pastor's going to ride in on a motorcycle today for a sermon illustration. Or we're going to do a raffle. You might win golf clubs. Just come, just come. Just come in. And, then, and they come in and, and we're hoping that they'll walk out and say, what was I so afraid of? It felt just like going to the movie theater. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say for, for most of the churches in North America, isn't that the target? That's what we're shooting for. Make it as comfortable as possible. And that will bring growth. If it feels and sounds and smells just like the rest of the world, it'll grow. Well, that assembly, as large as it might be, is the farthest thing from what we see here in the New Testament. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And so as awkward and as countercultural as it sounds, I will be praying Acts 5 verse 13 for this congregation. I pray that God would so mightily move in our midst that rumors would begin to spread in the community. That there is a holy God who is doing frightening things in their midst. That, that when people gather together, that, that they are convicted of their sin. That people are, people are repenting. That people are changing. Oh, don't go there, because if you go there, the life that you knew, you're going to have to leave that behind. I pray that people would truly be counting the cost before gathering together to worship with Redeemer City Church. Because the Holy God is with His people here. And He sends people out different than the way they came in. Isn't that a request that we could pray for? Let it be true of us. More than ever. And you might expect... Actually, let me read this quote from G. Campbell Morgan. I'm going to rush ahead. G. Campbell Morgan writes, It will be a good thing for the church when she gets back so near to the Pentecostal manifestation and power that fear falls upon the outside world. You know, we, uh, we read that story last week of Ananias and Sapphira. And then we read here about the fear and, and the trembling. And you suspect that wouldn't be a good strategy for church growth. I've read a couple books on church growth. And there's never been a chapter on holy fear. Never been a chapter on divine judgment. We don't talk about these things. Perhaps we should. Because in the very next verse, in verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Meaning, as the church grew in holiness, as God continued to display His power in and amongst His people, the city was terrified, but the city was also captivated. Whatever was happening in and amongst Jesus' followers, it was not something that could be ignored. And I pray that God would do something in and amongst us that could not possibly be ignored. That's the second thing we see in this story. Third and finally... We see in this story a great expectation. So some were too afraid to enter, as we saw in verse 13. But we see that everybody was paying very close attention. Look at verses 15 to 16. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. 
So if you've been walking with us through this series, I want to just invite you to try and engage your imagination. Try and see the scene in your mind for a moment. Remember, this fledgling group that had been praying in an upper room, and then they, they burst out, and then suddenly 3,000 were added to their number at Pentecost, and then there was the healing of the man, and then it grew to 5,000, and they're gathering every day in Solomon's portico. So, so in the temple complex, people are coming to the temple to make their sacrifices, to go in this way. But as you come into the temple complex, you see this gathering over at Solomon's portico. And at this point, it's grown to easily 10,000 people. And they're, they're there every day. And people are getting healed and people are getting changed. And Jerusalem is, I mean, the city's been flipped upside down. To the point that whenever these apostles who are teaching in Solomon's portico, whenever they make their way to the temple or back from the temple, the streets are all lined with people longing to see them, longing to, to feel their shadow fall on you. Because perhaps that might heal you. The city is just a buzz. So much so that, in fact, the neighboring communities are now coming to Jerusalem. It, the, you can understand why the religious leaders of the day couldn't ignore this movement. Why they dealt with them so severely and why they're going to deal with them so severely again in our text next week. This is, they're having an impact in their community, right? Now the shadow piece, I want to speak to that quickly. There's nothing in the Bible that says that shadows heal people. So lest anybody be lining up to try and get into my shadow or one of the elders' shadows, that's, that's not in the Bible as something we ought to do. And yet it's, some, it's listed here as something that the people there did do. And God seems to have met them there in a special way. You know, one commentator describes why people were doing this. He says, The idea that shadows had magical powers, both beneficent and malevolent, was current in the ancient world. And it explains the motivations of the people. Meaning this was just part of their culture. You know, in their superstitious culture, they thought perhaps shadows will do this. It reminds me of the story of the woman with Jesus, who's the woman who's bleeding, and Jesus is pushing through the crowd, and she grabs a hold of his garment, hoping that just maybe if I touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Now, does the Bible say that if we touch a cloak, we'll be healed? No. But did Jesus heal her? Yes, he did. She reached out with her limited understanding in faith, and God met her there. And that seems to be what's happening here in Acts 5. And P.S., praise God that he meets us in our limited understanding and blesses us because not a single one of us in this room has a full understanding. All of us approach God in our limited understanding, and yet he meets us, and that's amazing. And that's what he's doing here. And the text says, all were healed. By the way, that's the most challenging piece for me. That's the part that sends me spinning. It'd be one thing if some of the people who came to the apostles for prayer were healed. You know, a bunch of them came and some of them even got healed. And yet the text says all of them were healed. Every single one who came and asked God for this blessing was healed. That's going to lead to some of our complicated questions. But what we see here is that God is doing this mighty work in and through his apostles. And he is advancing this mission that he gave to them in chapter 1 verse 8 which I've directed you back to time and time again. If you don't already have a little star beside that verse, put one there. That's the table of contents for the book of Acts. Jesus told his disciples that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so here they're beginning with this mission and God is working signs and wonders in their midst to break up the hard ground. And it's like fireworks going off, telling everybody who's looking in, this is what you've been waiting for. And there's a great expectation in the community. So that's what we see in the story. An answered prayer, 
a powerful reputation, and a great expectation. The assignment that Jesus gave to his apostles, to his church, is well underway. The church is growing, the church is thriving, and at this point, people from the neighboring community are starting to come in. So the mission is beginning to stretch beyond Jerusalem. That's what we're supposed to see here. But we can't stop here, can we? Because this does raise some really important questions. Should we expect to see signs like this in our day? Or was this just for the time of the apostles? And if these things could happen today, then why aren't they happening as frequently as I might like them to be? Are we a a bad church because our people get sick? Because our people suffer from disabilities? Are we faithless? Is it even appropriate for us to ask God to heal? Those are... Those are not unimportant questions, are they? And the way that you answer them is going to really affect the way that you do ministry, the way that you pray. In short, I want to summarize all those questions with maybe one big rock question. What are we to make of signs and wonders? So I want to jump back to something I said very early on in this series, just because I think it's helpful for you to know. I want to be fair, clear as kind. There are two ditches in this discussion that we really want you to stay out of. Okay, so on on one side, you've got the ditch that says that God never does miracles today, right? You shouldn't ask for them. It's inappropriate to ask for them. And and if you see them, then you should be really suspicious because he doesn't do those things today. If you're in that ditch, I would tell you, this probably isn't the church for you. You're going to be uncomfortable here. And then on the other side of the road, there's the ditch that said that it is always God's will to heal everyone every time immediately. And so if you ask for healing and you don't get healing then the problem is either with your faith or with the faith of the person praying because it's God's will that you will be healed every time immediately. If you're in that ditch, you need to know we don't believe that. This is not going to be a great church for you. So those are the ditches. Stay out of those. If you fall into one of those ditches and you're talking to people about that, then you're probably going to have an awkward meeting with the pastor, right? Those are the ditches. But then, thankfully, between the ditches, there is this this generous spectrum and in this generous spectrum, we've got people, as I look out in this room, we've got people kind of across the, the expanse there in the spectrum. People who gravitate a little more towards caution. People who gravitate a little bit more towards expectation. And praise God, we need both of those people here. So let's walk together, right? Let's walk with charity and generosity. Let's walk with wisdom. And let's walk in a biblical way. And that's what I want to do this morning. We want to walk together in a biblical way. And to that end, I want to just put forward three truths that whether you're leaning towards caution or you're leaning a little bit more towards expectation, three truths that we can all agree on, right? That are keeping us walking in the straight and narrow path. And then from those three truths, I'm going to pull out implications as we go. Okay, that's the plan as we come to a close today. Here's the first truth that we can all agree on, no matter where we lean in that spectrum. Signs and wonders served to validate the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. That's true. Everybody can agree that that is true. Now, some might go a step further and say, and therefore it stopped when they died. We're not going to talk about that right now. What we are going to say is that they most certainly validated the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. That's one of the things they were doing, which is why we can all agree that there was an inordinate amount of signs and miracles in the days of the apostles and in the ministry of Jesus. We see that in Scripture. We see that in our own personal experience. The the fact that there are so many people who are at home today because they're sick. The fact that there may be some people here today who've got a bit of a runny nose. It was different. 
There was something that was particularly special and important that was happening. And we see this in the New Testament. So, for example, the church in Corinth, they understood that the apostles were marked by a, an inordinate amount of signs and miracles. So much so that when Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he needed to defend his ministry as an apostle, here's what he said to them. This is in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, so you can make a little note of that. Paul wrote to them and he said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And Paul hated having to do this, but he did it. He said, listen, there are people suggesting I'm not an apostle. You saw the signs of a true apostle, the signs and wonders and miracles that were worked amongst you. Because the church understood that Jesus and the apostles were marked by these signs and wonders in a really special way. I mentioned they were like neon signs pointing at this group saying, listen to them. Right? They're like fireworks going off saying that God is doing something new here. All of the expectations, everything we've been waiting for, it's happening right now. And God used these signs and wonders to break up the hard ground and to prepare people to recognize what was right in front of their eyes. We can all agree on that. What's the implication then? Here's the implication. So, don't let it shake your faith when you see fewer signs today. If you're expecting to see today the same number of signs and wonders that you see in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, then you're going to be discouraged and disappointed. And by the way, isn't that what happens the first time we read through the book of Acts? I remember reading through the book of Acts as a teenager and you, you close the thing and you just think, my church is faithless. <laughs> like, we gotta, what, why aren't we seeing more of this here? And it, it rocks us, but it shouldn't if we understand you know, if you, if you are ready to try and position yourself in Elder Keith's shadow to get a healing for your runny nose, you're going to be disappointed. Especially because Keith is homesick today, so it, he definitely doesn't got it, right? Something special, something unique was happening. The kingdom was breaking into the world in a particular way. Now, that doesn't mean that we should never expect the miraculous in our midst. We're going to get to that shortly. But it does mean that we shouldn't let our faith be shaken when the exciting things that perhaps we are longing for don't seem to be happening in our midst as frequently as we want. That's the first truth. The second, we can all agree that signs and wonders were never an end unto themselves. If you can't agree to that, then you've, you've lost the plot. So let me read it again. Signs and wonders were never an end unto themselves. All of the people who were healed by Peter's shadow eventually died. Peter, who was healing people with his shadow, eventually died. Jesus rose Lazarus up from the tomb. Lazarus was fully dead. He walked out of that tomb alive, continued to live with his sisters Mary and Martha. But Lazarus, you know, eventually died. Again, along with Mary and Martha. Which means that those momentary healings were serving a purpose. They weren't an end unto themselves. If they were, then they failed. Because those people, their healing didn't last. So then what was the purpose of those signs? Before I explain this, I want to maybe provide an illustration from Jesus' ministry. So you remember when the paralyzed man was brought to Jesus and his friends, they all put him on a mat and they, they brought him to Jesus because they heard rumors that this Jesus is healing people. So they brought their friend and they, they came to Jesus. And when Jesus saw this paralyzed man, he, he looked at him and 
He didn't do what they expected him to do. Jesus saw this man and he saw his greatest need, his deepest need. And Jesus said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's looking like that's not why he's here. But Jesus understands that ultimately in the grand scheme of things, 2,000 years later, whether or not that man ever takes another step is inconsequential. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that this man is in right relationship with his heavenly Father. That he's going to be in glory forever. So Jesus addresses his deepest need. Your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders who are watching, you remember, they're so irritated. And in their heads they're thinking, who does Jesus think he is? You don't have the authority to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. This Jesus, what an overstep. What a prideful man. And Jesus, reading their thoughts addresses the crowd and he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. So Jesus healed that young man, but listen, he healed that man as a means to an end. The purpose of the healing was to prove that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. To give us the healing that we truly need. And I would be so bold as to say that that is the purpose for every healing, even today. So time and time again, we see this pattern in the book of Acts. That a sign is performed, but then that's not the end of the story. The sign is performed, and then the apostles come forward and they preach the gospel. The sign is preparing people to hear the gospel. The sign isn't the end of it unto itself. It prepares for the great, glorious gospel. Here's our implication, because that's true. Here's the implication. So, focus more on the thing signified than the sign. So I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I had to Google this to make sure. I assumed that there would be a sign for the Grand Canyon. There is. Found it on Google. It's a nice sign. If you're driving to the Grand Canyon, some of us, I suspect, might even pull over. You might even take a photo op at the sign for the Grand Canyon. And you do. Maybe you stay there for five, ten minutes. You're so excited you're going to go in. You get your photos. But then you get back into your car and you go past the sign to see the Grand Canyon because of course you do, right? Of course, it's ridiculous to think that you might stay at the sign. And then you come home from your trip and you show your friends the trip, the photos from your trip, and you might just show your friends the photo of you standing by the sign, but you're not going to stay on that photo. For the, you're going to very quickly flick past it and show them the glory of the Grand Canyon. Signs and wonders simply serve to illustrate the glory of that which is ahead. They're a first fruit. They're a, they're a foretaste of the new life that Jesus has purchased for us. So when the church is more excited about the signs and the healings and the miracles, then she is about the Great Commission, the evangelism, the discipleship, then the church is in trouble. And this is a very real temptation. I'll tell you, it's a very real temptation for any church that preaches through the book of Acts. It's a very real temptation for for any church that ever catches just a little taste of the miraculous. There were crowds that followed Jesus, for example, and Jesus looked out at the crowds, and and you think, great, he's got the crowds. That's a win. Jesus has won. But Jesus looks out at the crowds. He says, you're not here for me. You're here because you're waiting to see me do the thing with the bread again, to multiply the loaves and the fish. That's why you're here. 
You're here for the bread. And in the same way in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas performed signs and wonders in Lystra, the crowd seized upon that healing and they missed the mark entirely. It says, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, Acts 14, 11 to 12, when they saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lysonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, Paul and Barnabas were very quick to correct their mistake, but it serves to highlight the danger. It's not uncommon that when we witness the miraculous, we can become obsessed with it and we can get our focus completely out of order. But the miracles are just signs. So, church, here's what I would put forward for us. I pray that we see some signs and wonders and miracles in our midst. Praise God that, oh, that we would see more of those in our midst. And when we do, let's take a quick photo. Thank God for this foretaste of what it is that He's ultimately going to do. But then let's resolve to press forward to the thing that the sign signifies. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is our Grand Canyon. That's what makes our hearts sing. And if our hearts begin to sing for the little signs, if we, if we pitch our tent next to the sign and fail to enter into the glory, then we've missed it. So let's resolve not to do that. Press in. And having said all of that, I want to close with one last important truth. Here it is. Third. Signs and wonders are gifts from God. Therefore, we're invited to ask for them. Having said everything I've said, it'd be really easy to say, well then, we don't need the sign, right? If the sign is just a means to an end, let's just skip right ahead to the end. We don't need the sign. Let's, just not, even, let's not even bother asking for the sign. I can understand why you might land there. Are there churches that inappropriately fixate on the miraculous? Yes. Have some of us been burned by really wacky experiences in some of those churches? Yes. Can signs and wonders wind up drawing crowds for all of the wrong reasons and take you entirely off your mission? Yes. Does that mean then that we should stop asking God to do the miraculous? No. Because the misuse of a thing doesn't negate a thing. If you go home today and your next door neighbor has run out an extension cord and he's got his vacuum cleaner in the front yard trying to handle the leaves with his vacuum cleaner, he's going to look really silly. All the other neighbors are going to be watching him thinking, this is really silly. It's not a great testimony to vacuum cleaners because it's not super effective. Does that mean that you should then go inside and throw out your vacuum cleaner because the neighbor so poorly misused his? No, that's ridiculous. Well then, why then are we so tempted to do this with the miraculous, with signs and wonders? The thing is, I don't see any texts that teach us that God will never perform similar signs and wonders here if he so chooses. In fact, we find passages that not only expect God to continue working in this way in our world, but that command us to, to seek after such blessings. James chapter 5, for example, verses 14 to 15 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. And so we obey that command here. And if you're here today and you're, and you're sick, you've got some lingering thing and you would like the elders to pray for you, please do. We, we meet on Monday nights. We would love to pray for you. Just reach out to me. 
But we just, uh, on Thanksgiving Sunday, we heard a testimony from a woman in our congregation who had come to the elders and we prayed for her and God healed her. And praise God for that. So we took a photo and we celebrated and amazing. The gospel is glorious. God is good. He's powerful to save. Can I tell you, we prayed for three people that month. He healed one. The other two are experiencing the same symptoms that they experienced before. Is my faith rocked by that? No. No, because I recognize that God is, God is working. He's not, a, he's not some vending machine where you pop in a coin and you press a button and out it comes. These signs and wonders serve a purpose. And he gave us one because he's a good father and he knew that this one sign is going to remind them that I'm powerful to save. If I gave them all three, these elders might get puffed up. They might, they might start focusing on the wrong things. They might spend every elders meeting praying for sick people and never praying for the advancement of the gospel in the city. I don't know. I don't know why it is that he does what he does, but I, but I trust him. But I will say this, if, you're, if your view of the way that God works in the world, if, you're, if maybe some of the, the wacky things you've experienced in the past keeps you from obeying James 5, keeps you from ever approaching the elders to pray about an illness, then you're being unbiblical. Then you've fallen into a ditch. So we're going to obey that here. Or 1 Corinthians 12 is another example. I'll just flip ahead there now. 1 Corinthians 12. Listen to what Paul says to the church. He tells them, I'm going to read verses 7 to 11. He says, to each is given. So these are the the people in the church. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. So I'll stop there. Paul's listing these, these gifts that are given to the church. And some of these gifts are gifts that we're comfortable with. And we say, yeah. That's awesome. And then the next gift, you go, oh, oh, I am not as comfortable with that gift. And yet Paul says these gifts have been given to the church for the common good, for the building up of the people of God. And I have not yet heard a compelling argument to suggest that that these gifts that Paul is outlining in chapter 12 were to disappear when the apostles disappeared. I've heard some attempted arguments, and none of them were very biblical or compelling. Therefore, if signs and wonders were used by God to advance the gospel in the earliest days, and if both Paul and James were giving us instructions on how we could use these gifts in the church, then the Bible is teaching that signs and wonders are gifts from God, and we're invited to ask for them. So here's the implication. Let us then resolve not to put our own restrictions on what God can or cannot do. Let's make sure that we don't give ourselves permission because of bad past experiences or because of our own just inner leanings towards caution or towards expectation. Let us make sure that we don't give ourselves permission to go further than the Bible and to put God into a box. Can He work wonders in our midst today? Might it be possible that He could determine that the hard soil in Aurelia would be made receptive to the Gospel by an outpouring of some signs and some wonders. Is it appropriate for any one of us to say, no, God cannot and will not do that today? 
God is a good father. And this is where I'm landing. Okay, here's our conclusion. Rest in this. Whether you lean towards caution or expectation, God is a good father. Which means he won't give us a gift that we don't need. He won't give us a gift that will be unhelpful. So now I'm going to take off. This is, so we want to be biblical. I want to acknowledge right now that this is just a thought for me. This is not a biblical thing. But my thought is that sometimes perhaps God doesn't give us some of these signs and wonders because he knows that we'll be like those people who pitch our tents by the sign at the Grand Canyon and just content ourselves to stay there. He knows our hearts. So, so I suspect that perhaps there are gifts that he doesn't give to us because we don't need it in this moment. And in fact, if he gave us this gift, we would become so fixated on it that we would miss the mark entirely. Perhaps, I don't know. But what I do know is that God is a good father. And if there's something that we need, he'll give it to us. And if there's something that we don't need, he won't give it to us. Let's make sure then that our disposition as we think about God and we think about his greatness and what he's doing in the world, that our disposition towards him would be that of humility and, and that of, of having outstretched hands, saying, God, whatever it is that you would give to us, we're ready to receive. And so we ask. We ask for God to heal people. But our faith isn't rocked if, if they're back the next week and they're unwell. Because that's okay. Ultimately, God is going to heal every single one of his people in glory. We're going to be with him in glory. There will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. That You can, you can bank on that because of Jesus Christ. If we're in him, then we've got the healing. Whether we get a foretaste of it now or not, the Lord seems to divvy that out as, he's, as is wise. But we'll ask, because we don't know. We'll ask Him to do things in our midst. I'll ask Him, and I will, in my prayer life, I'm asking God, God, would you prepare our city to be open to you and use whatever means necessary? And, and, and that might mean that God prepares the people in our city by doing something unexplainable in our midst. Oh, that would be amazing. He might prepare people in the city by allowing us to go through a season of persecution with protesters outside our door. He does that too. In fact, that's how he, he... So here we see how God is growing the church in Jerusalem through signs and wonders. Disclaimer, in a few chapters we're going to see how he grows the church in the world by making it so uncomfortable for the Christians in Jerusalem that they're chased out while people throw rocks at them. He used both to grow his kingdom. Which is why as Christians we say, God, do what's right. You're our good Father. You know how the story ends. You know what will work. So we're open. And so let us never be so, so conservative and cautious that our hands are closed. And let us never be so expectant, determined that God's going to do what I want Him to do that our hands are closed over here. Let's open our hands and ask the Lord to move in our midst. To that end, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love You. God, we love you. We see through a glass dimly and we acknowledge that, God. We, we do not yet know you as fully as we want to. Lord, but we pray that you would open our eyes day by day. Lord, as we look to your word with the help of your spirit, help us to know you more. And Lord, we come away from Acts chapter 5 reminded that you are a God who works miracles. Lord, it would be wrong for us to come away from this without acknowledging that you care about the sick, that you care about those physical needs that prompted people to come from the communities just to try to get into the shadow of Peter. You met those people and you healed those people. You care, God. There are people here today who are sick. You care about them. And Lord, so we ask you that you would heal them. 
Lord, we think of some of the ongoing illnesses that, that we've experienced in this place. And Lord, we just unashamedly ask you, Lord, that you would glorify yourself by healing them. But Lord, we ask that with humility, acknowledging that whatever you do is right. And Lord, sometimes it's the delay where we learn the lesson that you're teaching us. Or sometimes it's the delay that enables us to be able to minister to another person. God, we just don't know. We don't know what it is that you're doing. So God, make us humble, I pray. Lord, I don't know if there are people in either of the ditches I've mentioned. But if there are, would you pull us back into the center, Father? God, would you help us to be wise? Help us to look to your word, to be shaped by you. Lord, not by our favorite online teacher, not by the, our, our bad experiences from the past that shape all of us. Lord, we're all shaped by bad experiences. We want to be shaped by you, conforming to your word. Your word is truth. God, sanctify us in your truth. And God, I pray, and this would be my greatest request of all, that we would be a people who delight in the good news of the gospel more than anything else. Lord, I feel it in myself that when somebody comes with a story of how you miraculously healed them, I get so excited. Lord, I just pray that I would feel that excitement times 10 every time I hear that somebody has grown in holiness, every time I hear that somebody has repented of sin, every time I hear that somebody has placed their trust in Jesus Christ, I pray that we would be a church that, that cheers 10 times louder after the baptism than we do after the, the healed sickness. God, because we want to be pressing forward to the reality that you're drawing our attention to. God, stir our hearts to delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, help us. And Lord, glorify yourself in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?